Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. A colleague of mine, a friend, who happens to be a sales rep for Penguin Publishing, J. Ryan's publisher, gave me an advance reading copy of the debut novel um, way back in March because he knows my reading taste pretty well and thought I'd love Kitchens of the Great Midwest as much as he did. He was, of course, right, as he so often is, as a self-described foodie and um, any novel with chapters named after foods, even Lutefisk, is that how it's pronounced? Did I say it right? Um, is immediately appealing to me. And from the humble Lutefisk in the first chapter through the extravagant dinner in the last, if you haven't read it, the dinner's awesome. Um, I was captivated by this interconnected story and the food and the people in it. A writer, journalist, television producer, look up his bio because what he's produced in television and edited is really great. (laughs) Um, Foodie, editor, and a Midwestern guy living in L.A., Jay Ryan can now add best-selling novelist to his biography. We are honored to have him here tonight to talk about his wonderful new book, Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Please join me in welcoming Jay Ryan Stradall. Hi, thank you so much for coming. It's such an honor to be here in Denver. I absolutely love this store. This is one of the stores that I think authors dream about reading in someday. You know, it's a destination bookstore. It's one of America's great independent, you know, bulwarks of literature. And I, such an honor to be here. It's pretty surreal. <laughs> so, so thank you for coming. Um, yeah, this is my. I took the dust jacket off for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but this is my book, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and. Yeah, it's inspired in part by my upbringing in Minnesota, you know, where I grew up amidst a lot of salads that didn't contain vegetables and uh, things called hot dish that were, you know, amalgams of meat and dairy. Uh, And yeah, and I really wanted to set a narrative within the what I considered to be the underrated world of Midwestern cuisine. Or at the very least, the underrepresented uh, world of Midwestern cuisine. Per- perhaps it's properly rated, but it's at, at the very least, I, I discerned it to be underrepresented, at least in literature. So, uh, it's the story of a young woman named Eva Torvald who grows up to become a chef in the Upper Midwest, and she's raised in the world of hot dishes and salads and lutefisk, or born into that world, and uh, grows on goes on to become um, the impresario behind a pop-up supper club, um, which charges $5,000 a head and changes locations. Um, yeah, and at the time I wrote that, I thought, this is pr- pretty far-fetched. Uh, I thought, this is like speculative fiction or magical realism even. like, like st- But now, you know, that was three years ago I wrote that. Now it feels like historical fiction a bit, yeah, especially in Los Angeles, where there on any given night, I think any dozen or so pop up supper clubs happening um, but yeah, I'll get into it a little bit with uh excerpt from the novel of, of how Eva's parents met, and then I'll take some questions and thanks again. Lars Torvald loved two women. that was it. He thought in passing, while he stood on the cold concrete steps of his apartment building. Perhaps he would have loved more than two, but it just didn't seem 
like things were going to work out like that. That morning, while defying a doctor's orders by pureeing a braised pork shoulder, he stared out the window at the snow on the roof of the Happy Chef restaurant across the street and sang a love song to one of those two girls, his baby daughter, while she slept on the living room carpet. He was singing a Beatles song, replacing the name of the girl and the tune with the name of the girl in the room. He hadn't told a woman, I love you, until he was 28. He didn't lose his virginity until he was 28 either. At least he'd had his first kiss when he was 21, even if that woman quit returning his calls less than a week later. Lars blamed his sorry luck with women on his lack of teenage romance, and he blamed his lack of teenage romance on the fact that he was the worst-smelling kid in his grade every year, starting at age 12. And even when he didn't smell terrible, the other kids acted like he did, because that's what kids do. Fish boy, they called him year-round, and it was all the fault of an old Swedish woman named Dorothy Seaborg. On a December afternoon in 1975... Dorothy Seaborg of Duluth, Minnesota, fell on the ice and broke her hip while walking to her mailbox, disrupting the supply line of Ludafisk for Sunday Advent dinners at St. Olaf's Lutheran Church. Lars's father, Gustav Torvald, of Duluth's Gustav and Sons Bakery, and one of the most conspicuous Norwegians between Cloquet and Two Harbors, promised everyone in St. Olaf's Fellowship Hall, bless you, that there would be no break in Ludafis continuity. His family would step in and carry on the brutal Scandinavian tradition for the benefit of the entire Twin Ports region. Okay, quick, quick stop here. Who here knows what Ludafisk is? Oh, wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> I grew up with that until I was about five or so. Yeah, and then since then it's been purely elective, which means I haven't had it often. <laughs> Never mind that neither Gustav, his wife Aline, nor his children, had ever even seen a live whitefish before. Much less caught one, pounded it, dried it, soaked it in lye, re-soaked it in cold water, or done the careful cooking to make something that, when perfectly prepared, looks like jellied smog and smells like boiled aquarium water. Since everyone in the house was equally unqualified for the job, the work fell to Lars, age 12, and his younger brother Jarl, age 10, sparing the youngest sibling, nine-year-old Sigmund, but only because Sigmund actually liked the stuff. <laughs> if Lars and Jarl don't like it, Gustav told Aline, I can count on them not to eat any. It'll eliminate loss and breakage. <laughs> While Gustav was satisfied with this reasoning, Aline still thought it was a mean thing to do to their young sons. But she said nothing. Theirs was a mixed-race marriage between a Norwegian and a Dane, and thus all things culturally important to one but not the other were given a free pass and critiqued only in unmixed company. Yearly intimate contact with their cultural heritage failed to evolve the Torvald boy's sensibilities. Jarl, who still ate his own snot, much preferred the taste of boogers to lutefisk, given that the consistency and the color are the same. Lars, meanwhile, was stumped by the old Scandinavian women who came up to him in church and said, and a young man who makes lutefisk like you is going to be quite a hit with the ladies. <laughs> in Lars's experience, lutefisk skills usually inspired revulsion, or at best, indifference, among prospective dates. 
Even the girls who claimed that they liked lutefisk didn't want to smell it when they weren't eating it. And Lars couldn't give them much of a choice. The once, anticipa- the once anticipated holiday season had become for Lars a cruel month of stench and rejection. And thanks to those awful boys at school, its social effects lingered long after everyone's desiccated Christmas trees had been abandoned to the curbside. By the time Lars was 18, whatever tolerance he'd once had for this uncompromising tradition had long eroded. His hands were scarred from several advents of soaking dried whitefish in lye. And every year the smell clung harder to his pores, fingernails, hair, and shoes, and not just because their surface areas had increased with maturity. Lars had become a little wizard in the kitchen, and by unintentionally mastering the tragic hobby of lutefisk preparation, its potency was skyrocketing. Lutherans were driving from as far away as Fergus Falls to eat the Torvald lutefisk, and there wasn't an attractive, and there wasn't an attractive young woman among any of them. As, and as if to mock him further every year, Lars's dad would shove a forkful of the crap in his face every Christmas. Just a bite, Gustav would say. Your ancestors ate this to survive the long winters. And how do they survive lutefisk? Lars asked once. Take some pride in your work, son, Gustav said, and took away his son's lefsa in punishment. In 1978, Lars graduated from high school and got the heck out of Duluth. His grades could have gotten him into a nice Lutheran school like Gustavus Adolphus or Augsburg. But Lars wanted to be a chef, and he didn't see what good college would do him other than delay that goal by four years. Instead, he moved down to the cities, looking for a girlfriend and kitchen work in whatever order, only insisting that neither of them ask him to make lutefisk. (laughs) That attitude left a lot more options open than his father predicted. After a 10-year apprenticeship at Gustav & Sons, Lars was already skilled at baking, arguably the most difficult of all culinary duties, but he didn't want to fall back on that because he only chose jobs that could teach him something and only went on dates about as often as a vegetarian restaurant opens near an interstate highway. (laughs) He gained a pretty decent handle on French, Italian, German, and American cuisine in just under a decade. By October 1987... As his home state was enraptured by the Minnesota Twins, winning their first World Series ever, Lars had earned a job as a chef at Hutmacher's, a trendy lakeside restaurant that attracted big celebrities like meteorologists, state senators, and local pro athletes. For years, it was said, a Twins player could enjoy his prime rib at Hutmacher's, unremarked and unmolested, but by the week Lars was hired, jubilant ball players were turning the night shift into an upbeat party. Amid the circumstance of this long-suffering sports team's success, the strange joy of it all spread through the restaurant. It was during these happy weeks when Cynthia Hargreaves, the smartest waitress on staff, should give the best wine-pairing advice of any of the servers, seemed to take an interest in Lars. By this time, he was 28 Growing a pale hair in it, already growing a pale, hairy inner tube around his waist and going bald. Even though she had an overbite and the shakes, she was six feet tall and beautiful, and not like a statue or a perfume advertisement, 
but like how a truck or a pizza is beautiful in the moment you want it most. This, to Lars, made her feel approachable. When she came back to the kitchen, the guys would all openly check her out, but Lars refrained. <clears throat> Instead, he'd look her in the face while he told her things like, Tell him it'll be five more minutes on that veal. And, No, I will not hold the garlic. It's pesto. <laughs> oh, you can't make a sauce with just pine nuts, olive oil, basil, and romano, she said. Well, now, he was a little impressed that she knew the other ingredients right off the top of her head. It wasn't something that he expected people outside of a restaurant to know. Pardon me, I just need to have some water. Well, <clears throat> I guess I could make that, he said. But then it's not pesto, it's, it's something else. How fresh is the basil, she asked. Pesto lives or dies by its basil. He admired her decisive way of phrasing an incorrect opinion. It was... It's actually the preparation that determines the quality of pesto. Proper pesto, he learned during his previous job at Pronto Ristorante, is made with a mortar and pestle. It makes all the difference. It's two days old, he said. Where'd you get it from? St. Paul Farmer's Market? Yeah, from Anna Hlavik. Oh, you should get it from Ellen Chamberlain. Ellen grows the best basil. Such wonderfully erroneous food opinions. This was, this was getting Lars all riled up. Still, in his Minneapolis years, liberated from both his ludifisk stench and its reputation, he'd still driven women away due to what they called his eagerness, and he couldn't allow that to happen again. Oh, she does now, he asked her, continuing to work, not looking up at her. Yeah, she said, stepping closer to him, trying to keep him engaged. Anna grows sweet corn in the same plot as her basil. You know what sweet corn does to soil. She had a point. I didn't know Anna grew sweet corn, he said. She doesn't sell it to the public. Cynthia smiled at him again. And I'll tell my customer yes on that garlic-free pesto. Why? I want to see you work a little harder back here, she said. He couldn't help it. He was in love by the time she left the kitchen. But love made him feel sad and doomed as usual. What he didn't know was that she'd suffered through a decade of cool, commitment-phobic young men, and Lars's kindness, but mostly his effusive, overt enthusiasm for her, was, at that time, exactly what she wanted in a partner. Thank you. All right, I'm happy to take a few questions if you have them. Oh, yes, please, in the front. Thank you. So one of the things that was so wonderful about Lars is how much he loves being a father. Yeah. And one of the heart, most heartbreaking things about the book to me was that he got completely lost in history. Oh. Was there a reason for that? Was there, what was the inspiration for him just never being known to his daughter? Wow. I think that was an... Oh, yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. The question from the front row was, Lars comes into the narrative uh, as a really strong force of love and inclusion. And the questioner wants to know why Lars isn't mentioned much going forward. 
I think it's an unfortunate adjunct of Fiona and Jarl, Eva's adoptive parents, trying to disinclude Cynthia from her, um, from their daughter's life. You know that Lars kind of was the baby that went out with the bathwater. If you'll forgive the analogy or the cliche, I feel like, um, you know, if they didn't talk about him, they didn't have to talk about. You know who their, um, oh, who Eva's mom was. Uh, in Eva's cosmology, Lars was a an extremely kind uncle. Like she knows who he is. Like she actually makes a, references to him in her point of view chapter. Uh, and she thought like it wouldn't it be cool to have known him. You know, being that he was a chef at a restaurant, and she feels his influence as a family member and identifies with him from afar, which is really kind of. Kind of sad, <laughs> you know, g- given that their connection is far more profound, and she doesn't know it yet. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think that was a decision made by Fiona and Jarl that had that unfortunate side effect. That's a really great question too. That's the first time I've ever got that question. Thank you. Yes, and another if there is one. Yes, please. The question is whether the book requires knowledge of Midwestern heritage to be enjoyable. Uh, I already see people in the audience shaking their heads no, so thank you for that. Um, I I don't think so either, but I think if you'd spent time in the Midwest or grew up there, there there's Easter eggs for you. Yeah. Uh, I think there are little, there are definitely a lot of references to very specific places in particular that don't exist anymore, like uh, Charlie's Cafe, uh, Fagra's. Uh, yeah, Happy Chef. Yeah, exactly. There's only, as far as I know, there's only one Happy Chef left. It's outside of Albert Lee, uh, but it used to, be, yeah, it was a, a northern Midwest chain. Yeah, that was a frequent stop for kids on road trips, truck drivers, families. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't have the staying power that, like, Waffle House does in its region, you know, but it was that kind of place. <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, I think if you if you grew up in the area, yeah, you I think there's more um, proper nouns to attach to. But in terms of the emotion of the story and the uh, characters, I think hopefully they're identifiable across the board. Yeah. Yeah, anyone else? Oh, yes, please. Heather. Heather Duncan of uh, Tattered Cover wonders what I'm working on now. At the moment, I'm writing another novel. I've written four chapters so far. I don't know how many of them will end up making the book. I'm the sort of writer that overwrites. um, And the first three of the first four chapters I wrote for Kitchens didn't end up making Kitchens. 
Um, but I'm finding my way into this narrative. It's also set in the Midwest. It has less to do with food. However, one character is an obsessive rhubarb grower. And I felt that was something I really gave short shrift to in this book. How, how could I call a book Kitchens of the Great Midwest and not represent rhubarb? The answer is simple. Most of the narrative of Kitchens takes place in the late summer and early fall, which is not rhubarb season. Yeah. There actually is a character attempting to sell rhubarb at the farmer's market in early August, and that character is reviled. Um, but that said, um, I grew up in a... I grew up in a neighborhood where you didn't have to grow rhubarb because your neighbors would give it to you for free when they would discover they once again grew too much of it. Uh, And we did all kinds of things with it. And I really want to explore or give rhubarb a fair shake in my next book. So that's, that's a slight spoiler alert. Other than that, it's also, it's also set in the Midwest. It's for now set in a fictional town in Southern Minnesota. I've, opted to make it a fictional town just because of what happens in the story so far. I don't want to burden any real town with. You know, you, you kind of hate to write about a town and then feel like you wouldn't be welcome there. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so so far this town is <laughs> is fictional. But, you know, we'll see if I change my mind. Maybe there will be a town in southern Minnesota that will really anger me in the near future and I will set this novel there. Just to get back at them, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, any other? Yes. Yes, Kathy. Oh, I suppose. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, Kathy asks whether if there are towns that will think they'll they are the town that will be represented. Yeah, I've found this is my first novel. I found that's absolutely the case. Despite my best efforts to not base characters on real people, there are people who are a hundred percent certain they're represented in this book. And we'll go to their grave absolutely uh, resolved on that issue, no matter what I say. Um, and and, I'm, and when I was reading in my hometown library last month, uh, a woman came up to me, having marked with bookmarks all the places in the book that referenced my hometown in some way. Well, it was a little overzealous. Um, I mean, it was very touching, first of all. It was it was really impressive that that there was this catalog, but there were more references than I intended. Uh, maybe some of the references were um, unintentional, were you know subliminal, but others were, to my memory, uh, pointed references to other things, other places, or people that may also exist in my hometown of Hastings, Minnesota. Uh, in any case, yeah, I I was really grateful for people wanting to see themselves and wanted th- wanting to see things that they loved and things they identified in this book but um i guess i'm i'm trying um trying not to ruffle feathers with what i do yeah <laughs> yeah i i think there's, there's one character that's based on a real person it's near the end there's a character who um goes into a winery wearing jeans a baseball cap, a blazer, a button-up shirt. And he brings a coupon for two free tastings. <laughs> Rifles through the wine and doesn't buy anything. And while he's there, he talks a big game to the operator of the winery about malolactic fermentation and how unappealing some of their grapes are. And, 
and um, is just a really annoying customer that I would assume most wine pourers despise and talk about behind their back as soon as the person leaves. Well, that character is based on me. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a wine fan, but I I I'm afraid it, there are times where I don't always know when to shut up about it. Yeah, <laughs> so I wanted to represent that. Yeah. Well, uh, the question is why I moved from the Midwest to Los Angeles. Uh, To pursue work, I was working in the radio, TV, film industry. I got a degree in that from Northwestern, and I'd been working on commercial shoots in Minneapolis, which is largely seasonal. Uh, I enjoyed the work a lot, so I wanted to go somewhere where I could do it with more regularity. There's not a lot of production work in Minnesota in the winter, so... Yeah, maybe there's snowboarding videos, or even then, not the most, probably not the most exciting ones, you know. Yeah, there is a really great artificial ski hill in Burnsville, Minnesota, called Buck Hill. The replacement sang about it. It's, it's really, it, it would make anyone who lives here in Colorado kind of atrociously sad, probably, that this is a ski hill somewhere. But it was what we had. All right. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, uh, I moved to Los Angeles for work, and I ended up working in TV for about 15 years. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun. Um, any more questions? Oh, yeah, Zach Paris. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it does. That's a really cool way of phrasing it. Um, an audience member, Zach, asked me, what holds Eva together? She, he, he believes that, um, or he perceives rather, that she's a somewhat amorphous character, largely represented through the eyes of others. And I think that is what holds her together, the people in her life, her family of choice, the people she's assembled around her. Some are biological family, some are friends, but the story is told by them for a reason. Yeah, they're the people that made her who she is, one way or another. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Thank you. Yes, please. Um, so you mentioned that three of the four first chapters that you wrote for Kitchens didn't make it into the book. That's right. How do we get a hold of those? Wow. <laughs> I had a question about whether someone can acquire the three of the first four chapters I wrote for Kitchens. Well, one of them is available online. It's available on a site called Midnight Breakfast. It's a story called Early Girl. An early girl is actually the first story I ever wrote for Kitchens. It happens when Eva's a grown-up and a successful chef. And it's told from the point of view of two very precious hipster heirloom tomato growers (laughs) who decide that their heirloom tomatoes need to be honored by being served as an ingredient in Eva's dinner. And so they drive to visit Eva and give her these tomatoes. Um... In the entire chapter, Eva's kept at somewhat of a distance. Like, she's already famous. She's not known to the point of view characters, except by reputation. And 
When I wrote bars much later on, I thought bars had a similar structure in terms of a point of view chapter being told by someone who didn't know Eva, someone who meets Eva at the end of that chapter, but in the through virtue of the distance, you know, holds her in kind of an unrealistically high regard, uh, perhaps. And I thought the I didn't need two of those chapters, so. I chose bars. Bars to me felt more resolutely Midwestern, and um, I just love Pat Prager so much. And that world's it was just it was just a slam dunk. I thought it's going to be bars, yeah. But I, I felt I didn't have room in the book for two chapters in which Eva was such a small presence. Because um, in Jordy's chapter, Venison, she's in and out, but. You know, bars, she's hardly in at all. She's in one scene. And I thought, I can't do that to the reader. I really, you know, I want I wanted the reader's interaction, direct interaction with Eva to winnow, to sort of funnel to the final chapter where Cynthia meets her. But I felt like, um, yeah, two of those was one too many, so... Um, let me know if you agree, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's there and I, I like it. I think it's a fun story. It's also a lighter story. It's, I think it's more humorous. Um, and that, that, that might've been nice to have in the book, but yeah, it, you know, I think the book, I like the book the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't, it did feel a little bit like disinviting someone from a party though. It wasn't without some like sentimental like sadness that i was uh, that i felt oh man i'm um cutting this chapter this first chapter i wrote you know because i don't know i'd never written it well i'd never written a novel like this before i had written a novel length manuscript 10 years ago but that will never see the light of day this one i sat down to write this you know you get a little precious about the first chapter you write and i wrote that chapter first because i wanted to have a sense of who eva was going to be. And then the next chapter wrote after that was Chocolate Habanero, her point of view chapter when she's 11. So that to me felt like the goalposts of the book, or the end zones rather. Um, football, why a football analogy? Yeah. Felt like the soup, soup and nuts, you know, maybe. Yeah, the, yeah, the amuse-bouche and the dessert. Yeah. <laughs> and then the narrative, you know, the story, Eva's story, and the people who needed to be in it filled, filled themselves in really quickly. Um, yeah, so, so thank you. The, yeah, that one. The, the, other, the other two, however, won't see the light of day, mostly because I ended up cannibalizing them for other chapters. Yeah, there was going to be a chapter called Lemon Cucumber, about lemon cucumbers. And there was going to be one on Puer tea, about the about Shang Puer tea in particular, which is a aged Chinese tea. Yeah, and I, that was actually a lot of fun to research. Going to really obscure tea houses and drinking like multiple steepings from the same tea leaves, and discussing with the tea pourer what the meaning of this uh, ritual is, and the and the origin of the tea, and. One case I had tea that was nine years old, another case fourteen years old. Yeah, really, really cool stuff. But didn't really fit within the realm of the book, you know. But there were there were characters from that chapter that are in the book for sure. Okay, maybe one more question because I've I've been rambling. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> if there's one. Yes, Kathy. Yeah, a little bit. I was asked by the Wall Street Journal to review a whiskey. Uh, yeah, that was fun. Um, it was an American single malt sherry cask whiskey put up by Westland Distillery out of Seattle, Washington. And it was exciting because it's part of a, I think, a larger movement in the since about 2008 or so when s- states and muni- municipalities were relaxing distillery laws and now as an effect of that you know i'm seeing more urban distilleries you know up i think not not quite commensurate with the growth rate of breweries or microbreweries but certainly there's a lot of a lot of interest in that and uh, i just went to a distillery um family-owned distillery in duluth minnesota that wasn't there the last time i was in duluth and the owner of westland told me that there are over 100 distilleries in Seattle now that didn't exist seven years ago. Um, and a lot of them are very conscientious and local. Like most of the grain that made up the whiskey that I drank was grown in Washington state. And, um, he went through a lot of trouble to get the sherry casks. Those are hard to get. There's more of a demand for sherry casks, he says, than there is for sherry. Uh, since the, the Scots, uh, insist on gr- aging a lot of their their scotch in sherry casks. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of fun to, you know, to <laughs> drink whiskey and write about it. Uh, and and even though I didn't have to, I, I inter- you know, I interviewed the people at the distillery and picked their brains about why this, why did you make this, you know, what did you want to see in the world that made this the end result, and learn the things I just told you. I didn't know that a month ago. And so that was, yeah, that was great. I'm up for more of that. I was invited to a um, a convention in Omaha this weekend that's all food and food writing. So I'm participating in that. And um, Yeah, the LA Magazine did something. They asked me for restaurant recommendations. Yeah, so it's it's coming, but not there's not a torrent of things. But the things I have been asked, asked to do so far are great. And I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely up for more of those distractions. Yeah, I would rather not do a Ludafisk judging competition, but <laughs> I have been asked to go to River Falls next February, uh, River Falls, Wisconsin. You know, not the best time to go to River Falls, but it's for a bars judging competition. And I think that'll be fun. Yeah. So. All right. Well, if there's no more questions, uh, thank you. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Heather. Yeah. Uh, not yet. Um, yeah, that was a really wild thing. Heather mentioned that the rights to Kitchens of the Great Midwest have been optioned by Warner Brothers. And their intention is to make it into a film. 
since they're a studio, they're operating top down. So they're looking for producers who will then look for casting people and directors and actors. So uh, to hear the book to film agents say it, I think it's got a better shot than a book optioned by an actor or director who can be famously uh, mercurial with uh, their interests based on what else is happening in their career at the time. Uh, let's say like, you know, Anna Kendrick options this book and then she gets asked to be in the next X-Men movie. Well, she's not making kitchens then, you know? Uh, so it's, it's nice to have the studio taken on, but it's still just an option. So they have 18 months to decide whether to make it or not or see if they can. And if those 18 months pass and they still haven't, they have the option to renew for another 18 months, at uh, which point after 36 months, um, <laughs> after three years, if they've done nothing with it, then it reverts back to me. And then I can shop it around again. But the two executives of Meta Warner Brothers seem very passionate about it, and they're going to do, do their best. And I know enough about the film industry to know that it's a any basically it's a miracle any movie ever gets made. <laughs> Yeah, it's a real house of cards, and pretty much one person, one key person leaving at any point can just bring it down, you know? So, um, yeah, it's a real shot in the dark, but I guess it's better than no shot at all. It's a, it's a fun thing to see. You know, it's not why I wrote the book. I don't really have an opinion on the film. I don't have any interest in writing the screenplay. You know, uh, to me, the film will be sort of an amusing thing. Like, I'll see, like, oh, that's what someone thought of the book. That's how they wanted to adapt it. That's fine. Um, I'll be amused to see what it is. But I hope it exists, and yeah, it is kind of a nice thing. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I guess that's it. Um, if you have any more questions, you can ask me when I, I'll be here signing books, if you have them. And thanks again for coming. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.